Hi friends, on January 10th, we embarked on a series, When a Child Asks, Embracing Curiosity. And we addressed several questions submitted by all of you. Why is life hard right now? What is the Bible? Do I go to heaven when I die? Why do we call God He? Why are there homeless people? Why are some people different religions? What was there before God? What's so important about church? And do I have to tell people about Jesus? This is a really wonderful representation of the endless questions that flurry around in our hearts and our souls. And I am so grateful to our teaching team and to all of you for your contributions to this series. As we conclude the series, it is our hope that you have come to understand that here, questions are not just welcome, they are precious. Questions in this community are so deeply valued because questions are at the heart of virtually everything we do and how we participate in God's work in this world as we follow Jesus. Uh, consider worship. Psalm 8:34 reads, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? You see, questions like these lead us to declare the glorious riches of God's love as profoundly illustrated in the wonders of our universe and our place within it. Questions also make us a bit uncomfortable sometimes, like why are there homeless people? Questions like that expose us to the complicated intricacies of our human compassion and force us to face things like privilege, economics, mental health, and other realities with which we must engage if we are to be faithful followers of Jesus. And the uncomfortableness that comes with those questions are really a gift because it is only through the discomfort that we grow and mature. Questions open our hearts and grow our knowledge. And the questions that you ask that come from your soul are precious because they're a part of you and your journey and your longing and yearnings. And so when we together ask questions in this community, we consider it a tremendous gift to have been invited into each other's lives. And it is through those questions that we find community, connection, and belonging. So as we move on from this series, please know that we will never move on from the holy embrace of the question. Because questions are not only beautiful and awe-inspiring, questions are an essential part of the fabric of our faith tradition. You see, the title of this series was born out of a passage from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. The same passage of scripture that includes our number one commandment that we say together every single week. That God is one and that we are to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. Now, what's so brilliant about the authors of these texts is that they recognized and embraced the fullness of our human condition. Because in the following verses, the author recognizes that as soon as life gets good, as soon as we have food on the table, productive crops, water in our wells, and roofs over our heads, it will be easy for us to forget to love God. This may be one of the most poignant exhortations for those of us who are doing materially well here in Silicon Valley. Be careful and watch yourself, the author says, because you'll forget God when that happens. And you will essentially, you know, then forsake the very giver of life. And so 
That's why the commandments, the teachings and principles are supposed to be talked about all the time, written on everything, your hands, your forehead, your gates, and impressed upon your children because in them you find life. And we should be careful to guard against the seduction of the material goods that sustain our material existence as if they were life. No, life is found in love, community, family, and being home with one another. And that's why there are rhythms and patterns to our calendar and seasons. That's why on a weekly basis we gather to worship, to pray, to seek God's wisdom, and to recite our commitments and our allegiance to loving God and our neighbor the way Jesus taught us. These are practices and habits and rituals that ensure not only that we won't forget, but that the legacy of obedience to God's way is not forgotten down through the generations. And by forgotten, we mean failing to live by these teachings. And then in verse 20, Deuteronomy chapter 6 recognizes the inevitable, the passage from where the title of this series came. When your child asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the decrees and the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord our God has commanded you? <laughs> yep, kids are going to ask questions. Parents today and in ancient times knew that the natural course of human growth comes through a persistent series of youthful questions. And not only are kids going to want to know, it is our job, our calling, and our gift, our blessing to honor their questions and their inquisitive minds. And we do so knowing inside each and every one of us is that same child wanting to know, seeking to understand better, and desiring to be that much more connected to God, to each other, to God's family, to our faith, and to this beautiful world that God has created. This is another reason why we embrace the question, because it shows also the embrace of our children. What is the answer? The text gives us that we should provide to the question, what is the meaning of all this? Brilliantly, instead of simply saying, because God said so, the author of Deuteronomy instructs us to respond, well, once upon a time. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And once again, the theme that we see over and over and over again is that what most satisfies a good question is not a good answer, but a good story. And we tell these stories over and over again so that our children and their children and the generations to come will be able to also act out and participate in the continuation of the legacy of God's kingdom being built here on earth in accordance with the way of Jesus. So, that's a lot of concluding remarks. And I was trying to figure out a way to sum all of this up. And the one word that kept coming to mind is the word wisdom. Wisdom. Now, when most of us think of wisdom, we usually think of proverbial sayings, like short pithy lines that give us truisms or principles. A penny saved is a penny earned. The pen is mightier than the sword. The grass is always greener on the other side. Don't be eye candy, be soul food. But biblical wisdom, while it includes proverbial sayings, is far more expansive than one-liners about how to raise children or living with a contentious wife. Allow me to illustrate. 
For many years, I've been a fan of performance magic. I remember as a kid watching David Copperfield on the TV for hours, wondering how he made the Statue of Liberty disappear or how he levitated. One illusion that I distinctly remember is called the origami box. This is a trick where there's a small one cubic foot box on a wheeled platform and it has swords piercing through on all three dimensions. And it even has a mirror in the back where the audience can get the illusion that there's nothing suspicious going on behind it, which of course there is. The box is expanded, the apprentice gets in the box, and then it collapses and David Copperfield then runs the swords through to the amazement of the crowd. Now for me, in addition to being amazed, what I wanted was to do those tricks. One of my first attempts was manifested in a bit of an obsession with a trick called melting rubber bands. This is one of David Copperfield's close-up tricks, which is done by pure sleight of hand. I wanted to learn this trick so bad that one day I recorded one of the TV specials that I saw of him doing this trick, and then I carefully watched every movement of his hands and his fingers, frame by frame. And I spent a good portion of my youth watching every split second of this movement and working hard to get my hands to do what his hands were doing until I was able at some particular point to melt the rubber bands. <laughs> my parents eventually bought me a little magic kit that included some fun tricks like this Bible book trick, which I've actually used as sermon illustrations in the past. And generally speaking, I think I've only done this for youth audiences, so you're welcome. For example, you could say that for some people who do not believe in the Word of God, reading the Bible is just like reading blank pages. It really doesn't seem to have any important content. Yet, for some others, they may actually believe in God and think there's something true about this book. And for them, there's wonderful stories to be told and even perhaps some nice lessons to be gleaned. But if you really want to know what's in this book, if you really want to see the fullness of what this book has to offer, you have to live it. And only by living it and loving it does it come to full life. Now, what does performance magic have to do with wisdom? You see, what we all know performance magicians, illusionists, and we the willing audience, what we all understand is that people don't really levitate or pass through physically solid objects or can be cut in half with a saw and survive. We all know that cards don't really change color or suit and rabbits don't really just magically appear out of hats or that drawings don't just color themselves in. Performance magic is the unspoken agreement between performer and audience that you're going to trick me and I'm going to appreciate it and be wowed by it and have some fun and get a little joy out of being a little deceived. But then there are those of us who are unsatisfied with that level of engagement. There are those of us who will sit for hours watching videotapes of magicians perform their craft so we can, quote, see behind the curtain. There are those of us who really want to know how the trick is done. And not just know the mechanics of the trick, but how do you get, engage an audience with the trick as well? You see, for those who are obsessed with magic, we're not just satisfied being wowed. We want the trick to be revealed. We want to know and see how it all works. Learning magic for us 
is not about mere entertainment. It is about the deep and profound understanding of exactly how does it all work? After all, what's the question everyone asks when they see a trick? How'd you do that? This, my friends, is biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is an invitation to a deep and profound understanding of how this world really works because it was created by God and for God and operates by God's design. And every day we participate in a variety of illusions. These pieces of paper called dollars, they're worth something. Capitalism is good. America is the land of the free. Tom Brady is the best quarterback of all time. Again, all of these are just illusions. Biblical wisdom invites us to the stories, the narratives, the commandments, and the teachings that expose the truth of all of these things so that we can see money and government and politics and yes, even sports entertainment for what they really are through the eyes of God's design and desire. To see this world through the lens of Eden, to see ourselves and our place within this world in accordance with the way of Jesus. That's wisdom. You see, in Proverbs chapter 8, starting in verse 22, we read the words of wisdom herself. This is wisdom speaking. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before the deeds of old. I was formed long ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills I was given birth, before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, wisdom, was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Did you catch it? This passage is saying that there was something before the creation in Genesis 1 and with the creation throughout Genesis 1 and that something is wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is not a bumper sticker. Wisdom is what provides the kind of world in which bumper stickers are even possible. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is not a life verse. Wisdom is the reason why you even have a life. In Proverbs chapter 8, wisdom is not a line that you write on a napkin at a wedding. Wisdom is the love, the beauty, the intimacy, the bond that makes the wedding happen in the first place. Biblical wisdom is not a saying, but rather the creative force that sustains the world and engages our hearts, minds, and souls. While being terribly distracted with magic videos in preparing for this message, a YouTube advertisement popped up of the famous Penn and Teller and their masterclass. And whether it's serendipitous or divine intervention, the promotional video included this closing line. If you get good at magic, good at magic you will you automatically, will automatically get, good get good at, at, a, at a certain kind of acting. Magic forces you to learn about storytelling, assumptions about the way we perceive the world. 
and then smash it. That's it. You must be empathetic. You must try to see yourself through another person's eyes. And I think you have to simply say that one of the things that makes life worth living is giving other people joy. When I talk about performance magic being an illustration of biblical wisdom, this is what I'm talking about. This masterclass is not just about the mechanics of magic, but about the beautiful, relational, ethical, and caring dynamics of reality that exists upon which the mechanics of magic can be performed. The reality of storytelling, empathy, seeing yourself through another person's eyes. I mean, this sounds like a class in religion and ethics, not magic. And yet this is what is so profound. Really good magicians see the love, the beauty, the intimacy, and the bond that makes the magic happen in the first place. And this, my friends, is what the entire scope of the biblical wisdom tradition is inviting us into. Not to see the world just as it is being performed in front of us by a variety of actors, including entertainers, politicians, propagandists, advertisers, and marketers, and yes, religious leaders. And by the way, this is all what people are doing. They are performing illusions, drawing our attention away from the political sleight of hand or the economically stacked deck. To that kind of performance magic, Followers of Jesus are being invited to see behind the curtain, to peer into the deeper reality that is right in front of us that no one pays attention to, and to use questions as a way to get at that deeper reality, to understand the corruption and injustices that result from our greed and callous indifference, to see the havoc that the constant pursuit of production and extractive growth is having on our souls and on our families and on our environment, to see the fear under our hatred, the insecurity under our fear, and the loss of our connection with a loving God under our insecurity. Jesus' followers, through our questions, seek to live in accordance with this kind of wisdom, a deep and profound understanding of the world as it really is, not the illusions of our everyday human constructs by which we live. You know, Penn and Teller are, again, great illustrations of this, particularly with one of their known motifs, which is to expose the magic that is right in front of your eyes. The best illustration of this is the famous Penn and Teller version of the cups and balls trick, which will explain itself. Well, it goes like this. You take the ball, place it in our hand, vanish it, it appears underneath the cup. That's the way it's done all around the world. You take the ball, you place it in your hand, you vanish it, and it appears underneath the cup. Here's a little variation Teller came up with, where he takes the ball, places it in his hand, then shows it underneath the cup, then it still appears underneath the cup. So you have three cups, three balls. Now take that center ball, puts it in the center cup, two side balls, put wherever you want, they still regroup the center cup. I come over here, just a little tiny bit of juggling. There's a giant ball in the center cup, one more giant ball on either side, and of course for the finish, it's an American Baseball! <laughs> now, if you had done the 
American cups and balls for a while. I want to kind of zoom in and do a pen and teller cups and balls, which involves breaking a few rules of magic. Now, the first rule of magic is you never do the same trick twice. So we're gonna. <laughs> Second rule of magic is you never tell an audience how a trick is being done. So we're gonna tell you exactly how the trick is being done. The third rule of magic is you never let the audience see your secret preparation. They must not know what is hidden in which pocket. And the fourth rule of magic is unwritten, but we think any magician in the world would agree with us in a second, that you never ever do the cups and balls with clear plastic <laughs> cups. So here's the pen and teller version of the cups and balls. We need the first ball, pretend to place in our hand, have already snuck underneath the first cup. Do the second ball, simultaneously secreting beneath the cup, put it place in our hand and show it. Do the third and final ball, pretend to place in our hand, pretend to show the cup, place in the cup, then secretly secrete and reveal it. Now we're all set for a second half, the cups all loaded, three balls on top. Set a ball, this is in a cup, each of the side balls we put them away, we don't need any more, we have three duplicates. Set a cup and come over here. This is not juggling. This calls misdirection. For look over here, tells us his final ball under, one more to the side. And of course, for the finish, it's an American baseball right there. Now, what I love about this is that once you understand how they do that trick, once you see how it's done, the magic begins to disappear. But in its place is a whole new profound sense of awe and inspiration that comes to replace it. And that knowledge of knowing how it's done, of seeing through the clear plastic cups, of observing how they set things up and the moves and the misdirection that they use, all of that, that's wisdom. Wisdom is being able to see the fullness of, of it all for what it really is. And our questions, the questions that we ask are profound because they drive us to that kind of wisdom. Every question is an opportunity to expose the truth under the magic and to use clear plastic cups to understand how this world is really operating. And for followers of Jesus, we use that insight to live differently into this world so that we can bring about God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis makes the argument that the various ways in which we construct our worldviews, they all have their limits. They all fall short in their explanatory power. And in a way that Lewis is famous for, he flips the question essentially on its head with this often misquoted line, which reads, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That, my friends, is the description of biblical wisdom. Through the wisdom teachings of the Jesus tradition, we are able to peer past the facade of our technology the posturing of our political structures, the illusion of our economic systems, the deceitfulness and the seduction of our consumptive commodification of everything and everyone as a mere resource for our personal gain. Biblical wisdom cuts through all of that and says, technology is not a God, but a tool to be used in service to God. Politics is not a ladder of power that you climb, but a position given by God for our stewardship and service to others. And economic systems are not meant to grow, 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 but they're meant rather to care for the people and the world. 
And nothing in God's good creation is a commodity to be extracted, used, and thrown away. Wisdom recognizes that the order and the place of all of God's creation is good. And we as humans are there to care for it and protect it, to guard it from destruction. N.T. Wright in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, suggests that the wisdom tradition was very much close to the prophetic and the apocalyptic traditions found in the first century world. He writes, Prophet and apocalyptist share the agenda of the Jewish wisdom tradition, and here's the key line, to break open the worldly perspectives of readers and hearers so that the truth of Yahweh can be seen and God's call heard. In other words, as Jesus lived and taught his followers wisdom, he used his teachings, his insights, his proverbs, parables, axioms, and stories to open our eyes so that we can understand the truth of the matter. And that truth is found in the God of Israel and that God's way of being and living in this world. Wisdom, my friends, is seeing the incredible value in following the commands of God. Wisdom is seeing the image of God in your enemy. Wisdom is seeing the destruction of our greed and pride and haughtiness. Wisdom is seeing how compassion can transform a heart. Wisdom is seeing how everyday pedestrian items like bread and wine are radical symbols of divine love. Wisdom, my friends, is seeing how this entire world came into being because of love and exists because God so loved it. And all of that is what we share with our children when they ask, what is the meaning behind all these commandments and stipulations? All of that wisdom is what we get to understand when we ask our deepest questions. All of that insight helps us to pursue justice and compassion in this world. All of that insight, all of the intricacies of this world are made visible through our inquiries, through our questions, through our pursuit of wisdom. And so as we come to communion, we recognize there are a lot of illusions out there vying for our attention and our time. Wisdom calls us to see the profound beauty, the long story, and the glorious, mysterious presence of Christ in these elements that we are about to take. And when your child asks, why do we do this every week? You get to tell them the story once again of Jesus and of God's love and the images and the metaphors of God's grace and forgiveness and sacrifice and our salvation. And in that response, you are inviting yourself and our children once again into the glorious mysterious, wondrous journey of discovering the wisdom that exists in this world. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.